0: Welcome to everyone. Uh, I'm Keo Collier. I'm a reporter and editor for the Texas Tribune. Um, I focus on energy and environmental uh, coverage. Um, On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm thrilled to welcome you to the 7th Annual Texas Tribune Festival uh, and to our panel, How Cities are Tackling Climate Change, uh, with Austin Mayor Steve Adler, uh, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, San Antonio Mayor Ron Nuremberg, and former Houston Mayor Anise Parker. Um. Uh, Our chat this morning will last about 45 minutes, followed by a 15 to 20 minute uh, question and answer session uh, where you'll be able to chuck all your intelligent, thoughtful questions at our panelists. Uh, Before we get going, I'll ask you to please silence your cell phones um, and also use the hashtag TribFest17 if you'll be tweeting or Facebooking. Um, So first off, a little bit more information about our panelists. Um, To my left, Steve Adler has served as mayor of Austin since 2015. He's represented Austin in the mayor's National Climate Action Agenda, a network of 294 U.S. mayors focused on addressing climate change at the local level, uh, as well as the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group, um, a similar international effort by 90 major cities. Uh, Adler previously practiced civil rights law and sat on the board of the Austin Ballet and the Texas Tribune. To his left, uh, Mayor Ron Nuremberg was elected mayor of San Antonio this June, uh, defeating incumbent Ivy Taylor in a runoff election. Uh, Previously, he served on the San Antonio City Council, uh, where he chaired the city's quality of life and city council comprehensive planning committees, and served on the board of Alamo Area Metropolitan Planning Organization. Nuremberg also worked as a program director for the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Down there (laughs) to his left is uh, Pete Buttigieg. Um, He's served as mayor of South Bend, Indiana since 2012. Um, He's president of the Indiana Urban Mayors Caucus and was a candidate for chairman of the Democratic National Committee um, earlier this year. how he busted on the scene. We all um, got to know him. Um, Buttigieg is also a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy Reserve and took a leave of absence uh, for a seven-month deployment to Afghanistan in 2014. Uh, Earlier this year, he announced he's joining the mayor's National Climate Action Agency, uh, saying all climate change is local. Uh, And down there at the end, last but not least, uh, Nice Parker served as mayor of Houston from 2010 to 2016, Previously, she served on the Houston City Council and was later elected city controller. Uh, Parker was one of the co-founders of the Mayor's National Climate Action Agenda, a coalition of U.S. mayors committed to enacting local initiatives to combat climate change. Uh, In 2013, she also was selected to serve on President Obama's Task Force on Climate Preparedness and Resilience. Um, So all of you are... Democrats or nonpartisan progressives, if you're Mayor Nuremberg. Um, And I think think we can all um, agree that Democrats haven't done so well um, at the state and national levels um, over the past few election cycles. Um, So that means most state governments and Congress um, is now led by a party that has, by and large, snubbed the overwhelming um, scientific consensus on climate change. So that leaves you guys, um, big city mayors who are mostly Democrats, um, really on the front lines when it comes to to addressing climate change. Um, And, you know, that may be exciting in a way, uh, but it's also terrifying because we can't count on the EPA anymore, and it seems like cities can only do so much. Um, But I'm hoping you all can tell us um, how big of a dent you think cities can really, really make in all of this, and what are the specific tools in your toolbox as mayors um, to, to fight climate change? Whoever wants to, to take that. Sure. Mayor Adler. I'll
1: go. You know, it's, um, uh, <clears throat> I had the honor of being uh, uh, in Paris when the climate change agreements were signed, and while the focus was on the international uh, treaty, obviously, Uh, At the same time, there was a gathering of mayors, uh, and it was the largest collection of mayors in one place in the history of the world. Uh, And the mayors signed their own accord uh, at that point in time. And even the international accord uh, envisioned that almost half of the uh, uh, required change that had to happen was going to be happening at the local level, at the city level, or at the regional level. So I think it has always been, uh, uh, as, uh, as Mayor Pete uh, said, this is, a, this is a local issue in so many different ways. And there are so many things that, that can be controlled. Here in Austin, we're lucky because we own our own power company. So we get to make decisions about generation that reflect local values. But the choices about fleets and about procurement, uh, about uh, uh, resource recovery, these are all local decisions that always was part of, the, of the, uh, the game plan for the international treaty. And now that uh, the United States seems to be pulling back from that at the national level, it just means that, that cities need to, to redouble that effort.
2: Okay. and I'd add that not only do cities have the opportunity and many <coughs> things in the toolbox to help with this, it's cities in their populations that are going to feel the impacts of disaster caused by climate change. We've seen that, obviously, with Harvey and with Irma. Um, but these extreme weather events are hitting cities. They're hitting the economies and public health very hard, and that population is centered in cities. Uh, I was the chairman of the National League of Cities uh, Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee while the Paris Accords were coming together. We set a contingent of mayors to that event under the, under the agenda of cities leading Recognizing just exactly what Mayor Adler said, that if we're going to make change, regardless of who's president, President Obama was, was in office at the time, we need to have cities lead that agenda. For greater than a decade on this particular issue, city leaders have been pushing Democrat and Republican leaders to work harder on these issues. So um, I think that work continues, and it will continue even if there's an administration change.
0: Okay. Mayor Buttigieg, you. Yeah, go ahead if you want.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's such an important question because it, it ties into the, the bigger phenomenon that's going on right now in terms of federalism. So at least when, when I was a student, and for as long as I can remember, we've talked about the relationship between the federal government and state governments like it's the only one that matters. And when we talk about local, we talk about state and local like it's one word, state and local, um, when actually what's going on between local government and everybody else, uh, uh, state and federal and even international is, is, to me, the most interesting dynamic going on. And climate's a great example of that. Here you have this, this manifestly global issue where a lot of the action is actually happening in the cities. And when you have governments that are either uh, extremely conservative and therefore unable to do the right thing, or uh, paralyzed by gridlock and therefore unable to do anything at all, it very much falls to the cities to show leadership. Uh, and, and you see that, for example, with the C40 and what a lot of the cities here are doing. Um, it's more difficult because we're more constrained, and you raise this question of what tools are in our toolkit. On one hand, uh, you know, so much of, of, of the, the, these things are local, whether it's utilities uh, or emissions. You know, even a decision that we might think of as a, as a traffic planning decision is also a climate decision. We consider when we optimize our traffic lights what that does to idling. Uh, and, and, uh, and vehicle emissions. There are a thousand things that we do that we might think of as a parks decision or an economic development decision uh, or a planning decision that is, in fact, if you think about it the right way, a climate decision. Uh, but uh, the truth is some of those tools are being taken back out of our toolkit by state governments, and I think uh, Texas is probably the epicenter of that, but I've uh, seen some of that in Indiana, too. Just to give you one example, our state's moving the wrong direction on net metering, making it harder for individuals who have a solar panel, for example, to sell their power back to the grid. Uh, and so what all we can do is use informal power to assemble a, uh, a way for people to come together and purchase their solar panels and install them in a race against time uh, before the end of the year so they can get grandfathered in. So you're going to see, I think, more cities being creative as obstacles are created sometimes by state uh, or national government, either through inaction or through action in the wrong direction.
4: You want to swap governors? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. It, we have to consider that right now, 50 percent of the world's population lives in urban areas. The United States, we, we still may have vast fruited plains, but we are an urban nation. More than 80 percent of the US population lives in cities. So when cities make these decisions, it impacts people's lives directly. And, and cities have we, have, we have three things. And we have the regulatory power, we have purchasing and contracting power, and then we also have the, the opportunity to, to lead by example. And so uh, many of us, or all of us have been involved in what is called para diplomacy, which is the ability of cities to negotiate our own agreements and contracts as sovereign entities and, and to put our own enforcement mechanisms in place to, to meet those contracts. But we also, every day, the city of Houston's annual budget's $5 billion. How we spend that money, how we choose to invest, makes a tremendous difference in building a marketplace. So when the city of Houston, my, my predecessor, Bill White, and now my successor, uh, uh, Sylvester Turner, have all done this, we made a commitment to renewable energy and, and that we would try to get to 100% of the city's power needs met by renewable energy. When I left office, we were at about 45 percent, and and we're continuing on that path. That helps build the market for renewables simply through our purchasing power. And then the the regulatory side, where, as as Pete said, you you make a a decision to, when we we changed out 168,000 streetlights across the city of Houston uh, for LED bulbs, not only did it drop our energy consumption dramatically, but it saved us millions of dollars a year. And the conversation we have with our citizens that doing the right thing doesn't necessarily cost you money, it could save you money, helps drive all of us in the right direction.
0: Um, Mayor Pete, your city, which is population about 100,000, is that right, Um, was one of many U.S. cities across the U.S. that archived climate change data that the EPA took down from its website. And... I was wondering if you could tell us the story behind that and um, the resources that it took to do that. And...
3: Sure. Uh, we weren't the first uh, city to think of this, but we were, we were very proud to, to join those cities that did. And, and frankly, there wasn't much to it technically. It was really just a matter of realizing that you know, we can no longer rely on the federal government at this moment to be a, a, a fact-based arbiter of information about climate. And uh, so we decided when the EPA started pulling down information about climate change and the administration that uh, that didn't have to be gone forever and that we could move to put it back up on our own servers. We were already committed to open data when it comes to city data. We're the first uh, city in our area to start publishing any data set that the city created online. We thought, why not use that as a tool to try to reverse uh, the effort to, to really, I don't know what better words there are than cover up, Uh, what's going on. But part of what motivated that for us also was our our own experience uh, with uh, weather that we believe has been worsened by climate change. And uh, I'm I'm mindful that I'm sitting in between the mayors of San Antonio and Houston, so I know that everybody's experience is different. But uh, uh, we had, uh, by our standards, a a, a devastating extreme rainfall event about a year ago. And uh, I only mention it here because I think it's important for it to be understood that you don't have to be coastal Uh, You certainly don't have to be Nordic to be experiencing the impact of climate change. We've got to be thinking about this not only from uh, how do we contribute uh, to the problem or solve the problem, but how are we already on the receiving end of it? We are on the business end of climate change in American cities from Texas to the industrial Midwest. And we can no longer talk about it like it's theoretical. We can no longer talk about it like it's somewhere else. And I fear sometimes that the rhetoric and imagery around conservation, especially from my side of the aisle, actually, makes it seem as though climate change is an issue uh, involving pine trees and ice flows and polar bears, and so it doesn't seem very local. Uh, I try to talk about it as an issue that has happened on specific streets and blocks, low-income families who lost their homes in our city because of flooding, and then explain why that is what propels us to do things, uh, like take what amounts to an activist stance with how we use our city website.
0: In the past six years in Texas, we've seen back-to-back disasters. It seems like floods, droughts, fires. um, But climate skeptics say um, it's hard to link any one of these events to to climate change, which is true to some extent. So I'm wondering what you guys tell climate skeptics who are often your constituents. Do you guys have a standard line, or um, is the science very clear to you, or do you try to explain science to them? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Is it? <laughs> it's my go
4: ahead, say... Mayor Parker. Yeah. Mayor Parker, you? well, I was on the C40 at the steering committee for a few years, and I would be on panels internationally with 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 mayors from very progressive European cities, and they would talk about the conversations they had with their constituents about the the about climate change and the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because it's right for the planet. Respectfully, and I agree with all of that, that's not the conversation I would have with my constituents. And I, and I, uh, referenced that a little bit in my previous remarks, and that is that I talk about very practical bottom line issues. Uh, uh, Pete talked about, you know, a, a person in the, in a neighborhood who loses their house because of, of a flooding event that has never occurred before. You have that conversation, but you also have the dollars and cents conversations. A- everybody wants to be a- aware of What's in it for me or how does it impact me? And that's, that's not necessarily a negative. If we can convince our constituents that these that decisions about climate change that are being made across the world will have a, a direct impact on their daily lives, I don't have to spend a lot of time talking about uh, tons of CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions. It's we have climate instability. If this climate instability continues, we're going to have stronger storms. We had 52 inches of rain in some parts of Houston. Yeah. No city in the world can sustain that. What if it happens again next year? What are we going to do? And you can do something to make that change. So in
0: a sense, these disasters help, help you make your case.
4: They do, but it's a daily conversation as well. Again, the, the, the streetlights, I didn't go to my citizens and say, we're going we're gonna to spend a little money up front to change out these streetlights because it's good for the environment. I said, we're going to change out these streetlights because it's going to save us money in the long run. And this is exactly how much. People understand. You have to put it in words that people uh, can experience on their own.
2: But this is also, I think, where the loss of a federal backstop in terms of being driven by science and data at the EPA is very dangerous. Um, we have not had to forcefully uh, talk about the community health issues or impacts of things like air quality when the cost of doing, uh, cost of doing business goes dramatically up when you're in non-attainment. So, when the federal government no longer is driven by that um, preponderance of data that suggests that greenhouse gas emissions and noxious um, toxins in the air are, are bad and link that to economic impacts, um, we no longer have um, the ability to go back to our communities and make that dollars and cents argument. We have to go straight to the data and to the science and, you know and, and Folks need to know that, you know, when 9 out of 10 doctors tell you you have a tumor and it needs to be removed, you don't go to the one that says, nah, it's okay. Mm-hmm. We have to be realistic about the problems of, of air quality and the impacts of community health, but that becomes much more difficult when the EPA is backing off of the data.
0: San Antonio is no longer under the gun to improve its, you know, bring down its ozone levels, but you guys said, I think, uh, when that was delayed, we're going to move forward with that anyway. Or Status
2: update on that. Well, that's right, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been on the job of mayor for three months. One of the prouder accomplishments of this current um, council, which is seven members out of ten are new, is that one of the first things we did on the first day on the job is that we rejoined the world on this issue of climate, Um, knowing that if there is no federal backstop, it's enormously important for our community's health on things like air quality, on resilience of our energy grid, on building in a way that is not so susceptible to flooding downstream, particularly in areas that are low income, and that have had poor infrastructure. Um, I think that's incredibly important for us as a community to, to um, be driven by those values. And so I was very proud that, that we were able to do that.
1: Okay. We're fortunate in, in, in Austin <clears throat> to be in excuse me to be in just a little bit different position because of the of the community that we have and the place this community is. We' obviously seen the same kind of local changes. I mean when I came into being mayor three years ago, we were in the midst of a an historic drought uh, and we were everybody was just praying for for rain uh, in that intervening period of time we've had we've had we've had a couple hundred year storms fall within uh, a year or two of each other. We've had significant, uh, fires uh, out in, in, in Bastrop. Uh, people watched that hurricane uh, come across the the Yucatan when it wasn't a hurricane, it was a tropical depression. Uh, and as we were all looking at that tropical depression heading our way, it wasn't until it hit the Gulf with temperatures that were reportedly four to seven degrees higher uh, that, that fueled that into a category four uh, hurricane that hit our shore. In a community like Austin, we're able we don't have to de- defend it just on the basis of its economic benefit, although I think that is very real. Mm-hmm. And the recent decisions we've made on solar uh, are actually cost-effective decisions. Uh, but we have the, the ability and, quite frankly, I think the responsibility given our community to really push that envelope uh, to help create the markets that are prices lower so that uh, communities uh, in more places can, can participate to, to try really hard to set the yardstick uh, and, and I think that's one of the, the jobs we have
2: in this community. And, and if I can just add one other thing to that, our cities uh, in Texas are growing by leaps and bounds. The population in Texas is going to increase by something like 75% in the next 25, 30 years. Um, our city is expected to double in that time. Um, how we build our cities will help us reduce the impacts to people who are living in our cities. I love what Mayor Pete said about us now being on the business side of taking care of climate change. It's simply not things like being a little bit more thoughtful about the way we do development codes mm-hmm. and making sure that people no longer have the option to build in or manipulate floodplains just so as we experience more extreme weather events and rain events, they're not flooded out of their homes. Disproportionately, mind you, affecting people of lower income.
0: Yeah, Speaking of how to build, um, in my reporting on government, uh, I've witnessed, I guess, two main constraints for flood infrastructure, as you said, and getting, um, you know, building codes updated and that kind of thing. Um, it's financial and, you know, political um, and, you know, there are budget budgetary constraints and in Houston, uh, post Harvey, there's been a lot of talk about the power of developers um, and how developers have, you know, run the city and they've been allowed to build inside reservoirs um, so I wonder, um, you guys are also, you know, job creators. You want jobs to come, you know, to your community. So how do you balance? I mean, you guys all have taken campaign contributions from developers and the business community. So how do you balance that politically um, when you're trying to make your city sustainable, when you have developers telling telling you, don't tell me how to build and where to build?
2: Well, we have to be more um, thoughtful and aggressive with the way we push back on really... I think, um, uh, irresponsible development practices. And I think part of that is, as the mayor said, we continue to see the tools that we currently have as local cities being uh, systematically eliminated or, or blunted by the state legislature. That has been one of the most important fights of the regular and special sessions of the last decade is how we can control for tree preservation uh, for you know buffers to protect habitat to where people can build and how they may may be able to manipulate floodplains
0: Mayor Parker were you aware I mean of the flood risks? and uh, uh, first I will say that that uh, the the Barker and
4: Cypress Cypress reservoirs the the, the the development in the reservoirs is not actually in the limits of Houston, but right, when they open, the okay, sure. yeah. So, but when they open the floodgates to relieve the pressure on the reservoirs, that was yeah. Houston. Yeah. But one of the problems is that you have overlapping jurisdictions as well. I don't determine. No, none of us determine what the floodplain maps are. The, that's the that's the Army Corps of Engineers. That's the that's the and Harris, Harris that's County a, does that's its that's own. The, that's maps. the federal government. Yeah. That's that's uh, Harris County. Well, uh, no. Okay. I'll, I'll disagree with that. Okay. It's not in, it's not, I, I'm not going to th- throw shade on, on, on mm-hmm. Harris County. It is ultimately the Army Corps of Engineers where it starts. Mm-hmm. but So there's a lot of places that you can get lost in that, like the finger-pointing between the various jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. The other is that floodplains change over time, the flood maps change over time, and the lag is significant. So, as we see, uh, you know, development patterns may move in a certain direction, and then the, then the floodplain mat, maps catch up, and you've already, you already have a huge subdivision that's built in a place that it probably shouldn't be. So, there are a lot of reasons why it happens. What we're going to be faced with going forward is how to unwind as much of that. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be cheap. And there are a lot of people who are going to be faced with the decision of how often do I want my house to flood? Or am I going to take a buyout? And leave, and there's there's no other there's no other choice for a lot of those. What areas.
0: can you say about the power of developers in Houston? Because you had upstream development, as you said, literally affecting downstream all the runoff. But then you wanted to promote economic prosperity in your city. How did how did you um, balance that? And do you think developers? Own, do I think own Houston are, uh, or run Houston? No,
4: I don't. But I will tell you also that you know we we get a lot of uh, grief in Houston for being the only the, the largest unzoned city in America. And uh, zoning and, and uh, unbridled development are actually two different things. Yeah. And uh, again, the type the of storm we just experienced, it wouldn't have mattered what kind of development patterns we had. Most of Houston would have been underwater with that much rain. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, who are the uh, usual suspects that, that fund campaigns in Houston? Contractors and, and engineers who are going to be getting the projects that come it's not so much the, the, the home builders, but it's the, uh, you know, who, who gets the public works projects. Um, a lot of the difficult development that's going on right now is in the in the suburban areas that aren't in the, the actual corporate limits. But again, that suburban development impacts what happens in the city of Houston because the water... Uh, Everything, every bit of water that falls to the west of Houston, the, the, the vast developments that are going on out toward Katy, all has to flow through Houston to get to the ocean.
0: The Gulf of Mexico, yeah. When you were uh, appointed to President Obama's Climate Task Force, you said, um, we are a city that is forward-thinking when it comes to sustainability and the environment. Um, and maybe that was the case, I guess, when you were in office Um but in the wake of Harvey, I, I just don't think a lot of people would would agree with that. Um, and county and city officials um, even indicated that to us last year when we were reporting on Houston's flood vulnerability and hurricane vulnerability um, to flood you know flooding and hurricanes. And I mean, what's your response to that? Do you think that's so true is that, or is the mindset changing there?
4: Well, the uh, city of Houston is also the strongest, strong mayor city in the United States. So it reflects the personality and the interests and passions of who sits in that chair. So, uh, Bill White was absolutely passionate about air quality issues and, and uh, pushed those issues. And and I carried on a lot of those. I was, I'm passionate about, uh, climate change and, uh, trying to, uh, broaden parks and green space in the city of Houston. So they've, they've flowed together, but in one administration, which now is limited to, you know, three, two year terms. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very difficult to change the direction of an ocean liner, yeah. mm. which moves rather slowly, in in six years.
0: There's kind of a rumor you might run for maybe a countywide office. Um, would you? What would you do at the county level um, to change? I mean, that's a that's a steamship you know, going <laughs> and.
4: Uh, I, I thought about it. I've, I've I've looked at statewide races. I've looked at countywide races. I'm actually now working for a large uh, local nonprofit, and I just spent the last. Four weeks uh, as a co-manager of the Mega Shelter at in at, at NRG, mm-hmm. so for four weeks I, I had twelve-hour shifts every day. I had people, cry, I had grown men crying on my shoulder just about every day because they lost everything they had. Mm-hmm. So I have I've seen up close and personal what these these climate change issues are doing to our community. So I am considering it, but I have no current plans to okay. do any of
0: that. I had to ask, um, Mayor Adler, uh, <laughs> Mayor Nurenberg, um, you guys don't have to deal with, you know, hurricanes and storm surge like Houston, Um, but you do have to worry about um, drought, um, which is particularly scary with the rapid population growth um, your cities are seeing. And it seems your cities are taking um, pretty different um, approaches to um, securing and nailing down future water supplies ahead of the next, you know, dry spell, which if climate scientists are right, and they are, (laughs) it will be even worse. Um, And San Antonio has pursued this massive, very controversial pipeline, multi-billion dollars um, called Vista Ridge. Um, And I I covered that pretty closely. Um, Very ambitious. Um, On the other hand, Austin City Council has decided, you know, not to poach groundwater from surrounding communities. I think you guys actually took a vote on that, right? Um, But experts say, you know, the Highland Lakes, um, which is Austin's primary water supply, um, are not viable um, in the long term they got incredibly scarily low in the drought of 2011. Um, so, Mayor Adler, I wanted to ask you, um, do you agree with those experts, and what, what alternatives is Austin looking at for securing long-term water supply?
1: So I remember when I, when I was elected, we were in the midst of that uh, uh, drought, and, and people were beginning to shop to us uh, multi-billion-dollar pipeline projects to, to uh, pipe in water from the east. Uh, one of the very first things this new 10-1 city council did in the city of Austin uh, was that we, we made it rain, so it filled up the reservoir. <laughs> Government in action. We get blamed for things we're not responsible for. So
0: convenient. Convenient. Yeah.
1: Um, it's raining not just water in in Austin, right? <laughs> um, but you know the 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 uh, we we need some water plan. Uh, to when, you, when you look past a 50-year horizon. Uh, for, for a relatively long period of time, we're, we're, we're fairly secure. And I think a lot of things are going to change over this next 50-year period of time. What we're really proud of is the work that we've done on conservation, on a demand management. Uh, we have a, a really um, sweetheart deal at this point, having uh, uh, given or purchased from the LCRA, a uh, $100 million purchase, certain water rights, and then we can maintain at a really great rate until we go above a certain level. But as our city has grown, we've been able to drop the per capita consumption faster than the city has grown, uh, so that instead of approaching that, that limit, we're, we're able to stay thus far comfortably uh, be- below that. Uh, and that's been the focus, because that's that's one just better generally for the climate. It, it's everybody should be doing this to the fullest extent that they can. Uh, we are protected um, uh, for the relatively uh, 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 short, long-term future, um, and and that's where we're 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 focusing our attention right now in the community.
0: Were you on council when council voted to not poach water from you know rural communities, or was that were you on? Were you mayor then? I think, I think that, that
1: question comes up to us repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we're trying to be a, a much greater regional partner on all things water now than we have in the past because we recognize that, that the, the flooding that hits us in Dove Spring didn't really start in, in Travis County or in the city of Austin. It started in Hayes County uh, with, with uh, development and activity that was happening there. So the regional work we're doing is is much... When you, when you look at something like water... Uh, or the environment generally, uh, none of those things follow uh, uh, jurisdictional boundaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And really what any one of us do impacts all of us. So um, the the thought that we would be doing something that would be impacting somebody else's ability to be able to do something is not a a good answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all need to be sitting down and figuring out collectively in the region what we need
0: Um, On the opposite end of this, you know, Vista Ridge is kind of the epitome of poaching (laughs) water. Um, And Mayor Nuremberg, you were a a really big skeptic of Vista Ridge. We talked a lot about it. Um, You raised a lot of questions and um, you ended up voting, voting for it in the end. There were several several votes. Um, I think I was there for one of them. And why did you end up voting for it? And did climate change have anything to do with it?
2: Well, I think it's a very good question. And, you know, I think that water supply, just like um, climate change issues, are global. Um, you know, the issue with water is in the world today, and the mayor mentioned it, we have more people living in urban communities for the first time in human history uh, than we do in rural communities. So the global challenge that we have with water is g- having water available to wh- where the people are when the people aren't where the water supplies are. Um, My skepticism of the Vista Ridge project um, stems from the fact that in order for us to have long-term sustainable water supplies for all of our urban communities, we have to have a set of values put in place. I want to make sure that San Antonio has a long-term water supply for its growing population. Again, we're expected to double. We currently have um, 80 to 90 percent of our water supply coming from an aquifer, an underground aquifer that... In the foresight of state leaders in the early 90s, we formed an edwards Aquifer Authority to help us manage pumping and and place restrictions on ourselves so that downstream communities have it. We have to make sure that as we grow our communities, we have water available, but we're also emphasizing conservation. So one of my um, points of emphasis is that if we are going to pipe in water from another area, if we're going to move it from one basin to another we also have to do better of conserving the water that we have currently. That's something I didn't see uh, in the current water, uh, water supply strategy. Uh, we also have to be regional partners, uh, which is why um, when this all began, we went up to Burleson County. We made sure that there were um, partnerships in place to know that landowners there in a more rural area, if they were going to be impacted and their wells were going to be impacted, there were plans in place from San Antonio to help them deal with that. Uh, to make sure that they did not run dry in Burleson County. And also, um, you know, we have to make sure that it is a public process uh, whenever we're dealing with water. So um, as we've moved along, um, the issues have been uh, met. But, you know, again, when we're dealing with a long-term water supply for the for this city or any other city, we have to maintain that level of scrutiny, and that will, that's what we'll continue to do in San Antonio.
0: One of the arguments by you know, the many critics of Vista Ridge was that it was being built to avoid stage three watering restrictions right. and that developers really wanted it, et cetera, um, to support business growth. Um, is that true?
2: Um, it certainly appeared that way, which is why the issue of conservation keeps coming up. We have no business... Um, piping water from another area of Texas if we're not willing to do our job of being uh, best-in-class conservation in conservation. And that's why we've been continuing to push forward on other uh, elements, rainwater harvesting, uh, recycled water system, and also the other elements of a diverse water supply, including brackish water desalination. Um, If we can't meet our end of, of the responsibility of maintaining and conserving our own area water supply, then we have no business going uh, and getting water from elsewhere.
0: Okay. Um, Mayor Pete, maybe you can take this one. Um, A lot of your cities, and I'm not sure about South Bend, just have been built out. You know, Houston's described as a 600 square mile concrete island on top of a swamp. Um, How, (laughs) I think I heard, I don't know, I've heard that a lot. Um, how feasible is it to retrofit older developments and go back and just tear up this concrete? Um, is that um, an option? Um, is it buyouts? I mean, how do, you, how do you go about rethinking how a built-out city is, is developed? And to, you know, how can you make it sustainable?
3: In some ways, yes. I think it is possible. You know, we're, we're an older city, certainly. It wasn't built with some of these issues in mind. Uh, and uh, a whole lot, if you look out my window in in the county city building, you see an awful lot of surface parking lots, for example, that uh, aren't great from a stormwater wastewater perspective. They're also just not great from an urbanist perspective. And so as more and more people, even in spread-out cities, in places like Indiana or Texas, for that matter, uh, as people are discovering the virtues of living in a a more dense fashion, uh, we may be able to create some more sustainable uh, patterns of growth that go along with that creates its own issues, but, but, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think the, the, the fundamental question we've got to ask is uh, pay now or pay later. And I think part of what's changed the conversation, uh, I think for our generation, and you can even use this to change the conversation with developers, for example, is I think that the conversation used to be either we pay to do something about this now or somebody else will pay to deal with it later. Now the conversation is either we pay a certain amount to deal with this now or we are going to pay a whole lot more to deal with it later. And anybody who's ever owned a home or run a business understands that. And I think that allows us to shift the vocabulary. Look, it just plain doesn't make sense to build to handle a thousand-year rainfall. It's just not prudent. The problem is a thousand-year rainfall isn't a thousand-year rainfall anymore. We had a thousand-year rainfall, closely followed by a hundred-year rainfall. So obviously, things are changing. Now the cost hasn't changed, but the prudence of dealing with it has. So uh, we're going through, I think, the most painful phase of all, which is to be to begin to realize that the price is already there. We're we're going to face the price of building and developing and rebuilding and changing in a new way, mm-hmm. um, no matter what, because the impacts are upon us and they're only going to accelerate.
0: Mayor Parker, there's a lot of talk about buyouts and how buyouts absolutely need. And to
4: I'm going to feel compelled to yeah. defend my city. Okay, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead, <laughs> 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 so, go
0: for
4: it. To anyone? It's not actually a swamp. It's the it's the coastal prairie.
0: Coastal prairie, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> which is, which has
4: been paved over. And but and to anyone who comes to Houston, one of the first things they they mention is how green the city is, how many trees there are, and 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 how green it is. the the, the problem is that those trees aren't native they weren't natural we were the we were the coastal prairie it was a very different environment and you're right we have we have paved over it is it possible to to undo a lot of that damage absolutely but it's not fast and it's not cheap and it's not easy we put in a a uh, complete streets policy for the city of Houston that is that's been carried forward which is not only about who uses the street and and how you have access for for Bicycles and pedestrians, but it's also about how you carry water uh, through the streets. The streets of Houston, although that's cement, it's part of our drainage system. And it's, a, it's not a design flaw when the streets fill up with water, it is part of our drainage system because drainage in Houston is like trying to drain a bathtub with the stopper in the hole. And, and it's, it's a, we have clay soil, we have tidal influence. And, and we're, we're kind of a bowl. So it, it's always going to be a challenge. But as we move forward, we've, we've made the right decisions. But, for example, going to a complete streets uh, program, if I spent the same amount of money that's been spent right now on the, the new complete streets in order to get back for all 640 square miles to get everything up to the, you know, the new drainage policies, the new street access policies... It would take about 150 years uh-huh. at current expenditures, mm-hmm. and as so as, as Mayor Pete said, it's it's we are paying the price now, mm-hmm. and and we have to, there's a there's a cost benefit analysis that everybody's going to have to do in order to get
0: there. You faced a lot of um, pushback on rebuild Houston, and it just seems like Houstonians kind of don't want to pay for a lot of this stuff, um, particularly you know the suburbs. Do um, you think Harvey is was the storm to changed their minds? I, I mean, everyone thought Allison might be that, but it was kind of concentrated, the impact, and Harvey was extremely widespread. I, I, I mean, I do you not. think it will...
4: I, I hope not, because both Allison and, and Harvey were were freak storms. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that this isn't the new, the, the new reality for coastal cities, but you cannot design any city system to handle 52 inches of, of rain in a 24- or 48-hour... Period. You would, you would bankrupt the entire country trying to, to do that. So we, what you have to do is to try to figure out that 100-year storm and where the, where the costs are. So we're, we're right now uh, looking at the, the Barker and Cypress uh, reservoirs and, and whether, whether we need a new reservoir or whether we need to, you know, how much investment do we need to do to hold water uh, there but the real calculation is if we can't hold water there. For the first time in in since those were built, uh, I think they're about fifty five years old. Nineteen forties, yeah. And maybe so they're older than I thought. Yeah. But the, the the they were completed. And uh, uh, I can remember in, as a small child seeing those that those um, the dams were there, and you could see them across miles of coastal prairie. And now the houses go right up to them. Every one of those people who bought one of those houses along the spillways got something in their deed that said, in the event of, of a pressure release from, from the dam, you, you could have water damages to your house. Mm-hmm. Maybe you read it the first time it was, that house was sold, but the next person who bought that house and the next person and the next person never knew that or never realized it. So we're going to have to go back and have very intense conversations, going back to what I previously said, this is the danger that you will face every time we have one of these mega storms. Are you willing to, 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 to rebuild every 20 years or every 10 years? Or unfortunately, the Meyerland area of Houston, we've had three storms in three years that have wiped out the heart of, of Meyerland. How many people want to continue to do that? If they're not going to do it, the money has to be available. Where's the money going to come from? It's not going to come from the federal government. It's not going to come from the state government, so then it comes to the the local taxpayers, and that's uh, they're, they're not very many, particularly in a with a short horizon elect, uh, uh, lifespan for elected officials
0: to have those. I want to ask something quickly. I was going to ask this earlier. Um, you know, if you guys think all these recent disasters are harbingers of climate change, and you just said you don't think that's the case. You no, I didn't Harvey say did that. I said I, mean, I hope
4: that. I, Harvey was. A, Intensity of storms, yes, I, I think that is part of uh, global warming. But having a storm sit on you and just kind of rotate over you for days—that's—I I don't see that that is a direct impact of global warming. I, I, I think they're two different things.
2: Well, and I would just like to say that you know these storms are massive. They're becoming more massive. They're becoming more frequent. And we have a real opportunity in Texas. We have some decisions that were made in the past that made our communities very vulnerable to this. But because our populations are growing so extraordinarily, we're rebuilding a lot of parts of our community and, our, and we're, we're building anew in places that need infill, that's why resilience is so important. How we build our communities is, is vitally important to whether or not they will become vulnerable in the future. And, and whether it's water supply issues or it's uh, you know, growth and development issues, doing nothing is not an option. If we can say to our community, whether it's piping in water or it's developing a landscape or it's uh, educating your citizens, if it's sustainable, if it will provide them the tools and the resources in 50 to 60 to 70 years to be successful and to thrive, then we're doing the right thing. We're trying to institute low-impact development. Um, It makes sense to do that going forward, but it doesn't erase the past. So we just have to make sure that rapidly urbanizing communities, cities that are going to be much more dense as time goes on, have the tools available to them. And not everything uh, is going to look the same, whether they're in the marshland or they're in, uh, you know, more inland areas of Texas.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm being told we're going to move to Q&A. So you're, um, um, unless Mayor Adler or anyone else wanted to to weigh in, I think we need to move to Q&A. are there microphones? Or, okay, there are microphones here on the side. Oh, and there are already lines. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. Yep. Yeah, if you want to get up. Um, I guess this
5: microphone first. Sure. Hi, um, my name is Tori Vogel. I'm from a swampland, Washington, D.C. myself. <laughs> um, actually, I, I'm here at the business school getting an MBA, and so I'm curious if any of you can talk about how you're engaging or attempting to engage the private sector in these issues. Thank you.
1: Our private sector gets engaged in a lot of the, the, the issues uh, that we make uh, here. Uh, we just uh, went through a, uh, uh, an update of the, the energy generation plan uh, for the city of Austin, and we recognize that there are lots of different stakeholders that are involved in that conversation. So we had the, the largest users of, of power in the city, the large <coughs> industrial users. Uh, we also had the small businesses uh, who came from a, from a well as the, the, the Zoomers and, and we, we brought in everyone uh, uh, that uh, had d- pretty disparate uh, interest in coming up with the generation plan. Uh, pretty controversial topic and we had a unanimous recommendation to the City Council that came from, from that task force. Uh, we're in the process right now of redoing our land development code for the first time in, in 30 years uh, and it's a code that while, while the conversations right now in the community are focused on on particular zoning uh, in in, in neighborhoods. Uh, uh, Most of that document deals with things other than use, and importantly, it deals with um, uh, watershed uh, protection issues. Uh, We had a city that uh, uh, fortunately, uh, a decade or, or so back, uh, said that any new development that happened in our city had to have zero impact on on, on watershed and runoff. So it was a it was an absolute uh, uh, net zero impact. What we learned though and realized is that's not good enough. Uh, we had too many years that went by where that was not something that we that we that we looked at. Uh, so we have the whole community now involved in a land development code that proposes that any new building uh, has not only be net zero but it has to pick up. Uh, a share of the, the pre-existing uh, burden uh, that, w- that had previously been created. And that is also uh, a very uh, a wide uh, community conversation that's
4: happening right now. It's very, different, it's very difficult to engage when there's no shared set of facts. In the, in the era of <coughs> fake news and <coughs> alternate facts, which also known as lies, there's just no if you can't in the past even with difficult conversations you could assume that you were starting from some shared body of knowledge and working out from that and when you can't when you can't do that it makes these these challenges much more difficult yeah but
1: wait 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 a second and I'm going to take a liberty here each
2: of you have major corporations Fortune 500 companies that have adopted significant sustainability and resilience Mm -hmm. strategies that are your best advocates. So part of the discussion is partly, Steve's driven a little bit, from code and regulations. The fact of the matter is, and that's what I'd love to hear you all say, is how you're really engaging with Fortune 500 companies who have established sustainability and corporate goals and how those play as your partners. You've worked with the Greater Houston Partnership and the Chambers and others. How does that play out for you as advocates advocate and partners? I, I mean, think
1: there's always there's always a tension uh, uh, from different groups from lots of different places with respect to priorities and how you and measure those priorities. Uh, but I think that generally uh, in in Austin uh, there is a recognition that uh, the, the the community culture that drives for sustainability uh, uh, and renewability in our in our city. Is something that enhances our brand and helps to attract the the, the workers and the employees that businesses want to have uh, so 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 I think there 's a direct link between uh, what we 're doing and the success of the city so it 's not a question of, of of what is the cost and I think the, the, the one of the mayors said this earlier. Uh, what is the cost of doing this? There's a greater cost of not doing this, and we succeed here in part because of the policies that we have, and that is reflected uh, with our large uh, uh, corporate and industrial uh, uh, members of the community. In part because that's the buy-in for, for 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 being here, and we all enjoy it. So so we're we're partners in that, even recognizing that in the in the final levels of the of the detailed different folks prioritize things a little bit different. But I, but
4: I do think it matters where, where they make their, their money and, and, and why they're approaching the city. So oil and gas is still 40% of the of the Houston economy, but most of the, the major companies have sustainability plans and they understand that, that they're a part of finding the solution. So the conversations that I have with Shell or Chevron are about creating a city that allows them to attract the workforce that they want. Conversations I had with someone who's a home builder in suburban Houston, it's a, it's a completely different conversation. So when you can't talk about the business community and the, and the private sector as one, it's all about uh, enlightened self-interest.
0: Lawrence Wright was saying last night um, at the Tribcast reporting that you know, the energy industry is actually, oil and gas is more um, progressive and, and support for the carbon tax than our government is, yes. you know, which I thought was interesting. But um, Hi, okay. yes,
1: uh, my name is Todd Litton, and I'm from the great coastal prairie land of Houston. Uh, I want to thank the mayor for, for her leadership there and, and continued work there. I was down at the NRG Center with Baker Ripley helping some, too, and it's great to see that. And along those lines, this goes towards that public-private partnership piece, right? How do we, how do we both connect that I feel like all the mayors to this interesting nexus point, right? We're hearing there's a need for partnerships in the county level, the state level, the federal level, but also this private level. Level. So how do we continue to connect that and help the the corporations and the mayors and our our, our our communities there locally? How can you all weave together um, to with the corporations to help the state, for example, tap the rainy day fund, right? Start saying how do we make these investments for our communities so they can continue to be our engines of growth and progress for our, for both locally state nationally?
3: Well, I, I think the beauty of uh, uh, coping with, contending with climate sustainability is it requires new thinking uh, and uh, innovation, and that uh, leads to new lines of business, new industries, new jobs. So, you know, even in a community like South Bend, uh, some of our sustainability stories are things that we in the government sector never would have come up with. We're reanimated. We used to be a company town for Studebaker, made, made cars until the 60s. Uh, this giant million-square-foot building that loomed over the downtown with broken windows as long as I was growing up, kind of taunted our city, is now being reanimated partly because it's been purchased by somebody who uh, knows that it sits close to a lot of fiber-optic cable. He's put in data centers because we have cheap power uh, and then has figured out a way to, to, to suck the waste heat that comes off these computers, which are very expensive to cool off, and pipe it into the HVAC system of the building so you can take other floors of it and have hip lofts or whatever you do with old factories, but in a more sustainable and, and uh, you know, fiscally feasible way, right? We never would have come up with that. But when we found out that somebody was, we worked on how to partner with them to make it a reality. Uh, we've got a, a small business that spun off, uh, started under my predecessor, um, t- dealing with our stormwater and wastewater management by putting little credit card-sized sensors in the sewer system. Gave us I like to boast that we have the, the smartest sewers in the world, one of those boasts that only a mayor can, can love. Um, <laughs> very big deal for us because, to make a very long story short, it saved us hundreds of millions of dollars dealing with an EPA mandate. Um, But the other thing that happened was uh, not only were we able to optimize the sewer system of our city, uh, but a whole business grew out of this because there's a bunch of other cities with the same issue. And that business, of course, is located, as most businesses are, right where it began in South Bend, Indiana. So there are a lot of very good stories that you can tell about how the private sector and the innovation that goes on there uh, can uh, lead to suspe- sustainability breakthroughs if you're willing to try new things as a community or as a city. Um, it's not about us in the government figuring it out, it's about us creating the conditions. And at the federal level, uh, you would hope laying down the kind of left and right boundaries that business is going to work within to actually get stuff done. Thanks. Next question. Hi, my name uh, name is Brian Zabchik. I'm with Environment Texas, and we've been working on a project for green infrastructure and low-impact development in actually each of your cities, the Texas cities. And one of the things that I've noticed as we've been working on this project across the state, uh, there's a lot of good discussion about sustainable development policies in each city, but this is largely going to affect new development. And the fact is, is that most big Texas cities are built out. Uh, within the city limits, there's not a lot of space left to do new development. And so I'm wondering if any of you all have any thoughts about how to uh, fix the building that's already been done in cities, and given that this is going to be very expensive, how uh, to muster the political will and support for (laughs) doing these investments.
0: I've already talked about that, but... If you have additional
3: thoughts?
2: I, well, I think San Antonio is a, a rare exception. We're a, a, a city that's sprawled over 500 square miles, so we're fairly large, but a, dent, a, a less dense population of a million and a half people. There's tremendous opportunity for us, and we're developing our, our implementing our comprehensive plan right now based on some of these fundamental principles. So there's an opportunity for us to start anew with low-impact development techniques. But in terms of how we retrofit a city with this, uh, we just passed, the public passed a, a, a sizable housing bond for us to acquire blighted properties, brownfields, and actually redevelop them with the private sector. Uh, and one way we can do that, and, and we are going to do that, is by incentivizing the developers who are going to use these techniques. I mentioned before that we, we, we passed and implemented a incentivized low-impact development code within our own uh, unified development code. And... Currently, it's only an incentive. It's only an option. Um, What we need to do is take the next steps, study this, and scale it up and make a requirement. I think that's also part of the formula.
4: One of the amazing things about about Houston is that because of the lack of zoning and the very robust development environment, the the city does reinvent itself very rapidly. And and what's saved us as... uh, one of the, again, very fast-growing urban areas and the, now the fourth-largest city in the United States, what saved us is that we have developed into a multinodal city. And as government, we have recognized that instead of trying to push things into the traditional city design where you, you have the center city and then you have an uh, an urban ring and then a, then a less urban ring and then the suburban ring, we have at least... Uh, five, perhaps more city centers, and our development patterns have, have become such that each of those is developing almost as if it's its own city. With the opportunity, you can't do the whole city, but as each of those urban nodes begins to redevelop, we can come back in with with new procedures. And I was in government for eighteen years. There's some things that I'd love to have over a do-over on. Uh, Because when I came in, I was very much focused on the protection of of neighborhoods and some of the decisions I made. Looking back, I realized weren't great for the more intense urban development that we needed in Houston. But there are places in the city where that's happening the right way, and and it can happen very, very rapidly. So it's the, you know, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? Don't think of the whole city think of the places where you can rapidly go in and, and make the kind of changes that are possible. Here, Adler, I'd
0: love to hear from you on this because I think there are, as there are in San Antonio, opportunities, as, especially the east side and other, you know, um, I guess gentrification happens um, to reinvent, um, build more sustainably. Are you guys looking at something like that along those lines as you redevelop certain areas?
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's an issue. You want to develop sustainably. Uh, sometimes uh, those kinds of issues in the short term uh, don't, don't mesh with affordability issues uh, in the city where it's getting more and more expensive to, to live and housing costs are going up so, uh, so much more, more greatly than, than incomes are growing up so it's, again it's one of those push-pull issues uh, we're redoing our land development code and dealing with some of the neighborhood uh, kinds of issues that, that, that Mayor Parker is um, uh, talking about uh, so we have a land development code now as we work through that uh, that tries to, to turn the knobs and balance those issues. Um, the, the second draft of the code just came out that incentivized people to maintain existing buildings on properties and to work with those, those existing homes and to enlarge those rather than tearing down homes and, and, and building new. Uh, we've, we've put, uh, uh, you know, one of the chief places that you look at uh, housing conversion to greater uh, renewability and sustainability uh, one of the one of the real crisis points on that is looking at who can afford to do that and who can't uh, you know a homeowner that has the, the wherewithal to be able to retrofit a home or be able to make it more uh, uh, energy um, uh, conscious that's at expense uh, then but that person then realizes savings but if you're not able to 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 come up with the expense to start off with, you're never going to be able to realize the lower energy costs and the greater sustainability. Uh, so we've increased the, the funding uh, uh, to help support uh, that, that kind of activity in homes that might not otherwise be able to, to afford it. But it, like so many other things, you know, is not a black and white choice. It's a question of, of balance and, 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 and trying to achieve that
5: balance.
0: Oh, one more question. I'm sorry, we only
5: have time for one more. Uh, My name is Rain Hammock. I'm an environmental science student here at UT. So um, seeing the intersection between science and the political aspect of it is certainly fascinating for me. But um, one interesting point that Mayor Parker touched on a little bit earlier um, was about trying to um, create savings regarding the LED streetlights um, and how to, I guess, present that more from an economic savings perspective than... Um, always just saying that uh, it's the right thing to do. Um, and one thing that's kind of more local towards the Austin area that I find interesting is that um, the city of Georgetown, they recently um, made the decision to go with 100% renewable energy. Um, and it seems like, and I might add, Georgetown is a rather conservative town, Um, So i just wanting to know, um, they kind of did it from what it looks like to be a more economic perspective. Um, What are you guys doing in your respective cities to try to maybe follow a similar suit with Georgetown and um, trying to provide, I guess, um, an economic incentive to constituents? You know, it would
4: be a lot harder to, to make these decisions if Texas weren't the wind capital of America. Because yeah. it, 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 ultimately, there's a delta that our citizens are willing to pay, but there is a delta, and when you go beyond that, then then you run into the the inability to make these kinds of change happen. So, you you and you there's a you, there's a sweet spot that you have to to work in.
2: Well, I I think it starts with defining sustainability. I mean, we're talking about resources. Some of them are not natural; they're financial as well. And you know, I changed out my light bulbs in my house to LED because they were cheaper um, over the long term. I wouldn't have to pay for them. And I think quite simply on issues of of resilience, we have to stand up and say, we've got to take a little bit longer term view than the length of our political terms and, and be willing to suggest that as a city, as a state, we won't mortgage our children's future. Because if we don't take care of these things now, somebody is going to pay. The economics of environmentalism are on our children's side.
1: I think it's important to set goals uh, that, that that help you drive to the to the end that you want to be able to achieve, and it also helps you with the planning and the financial planning in order to be able to get there. Uh, you know, in, in Austin, we've set a uh, zero net uh, carbon footprint goal of 2050. We've set a 2027 goal of getting to 65 percent uh, renewability within our energy generation plan, uh, 2020 goal with respect to zero carbon footprint for municipal operations. And I think that when cities set those kind of goals which was uh, the, the work that um, uh, began with, with Mayor Parker on the, on the, on the C-40 uh, that you have something to be able to drive to and communities can can adjust risk and resources uh, over, a, over a longer period of time in order to be able to get there.
0: Okay. Sorry we can't take more questions. Um, we're now on a festival lunch break. There are food trucks outside. Give a hand to our panelists.